Hi, I'm Steve Barsh, managing partner at Dream It Ventures, streaming to you today from Philadelphia, and welcome to Dream It Live. Today's show, our guest is going to be Joel Peterson. Joel is chairman of JetBlue Airways. He is a professor of Stanford's at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where he teaches courses in real estate, entrepreneurship, and leadership. He's author of two great books. One is The Ten Laws of Trust, which was out a couple years ago. Great book. I've read it and a brand new book I haven't read just yet. I've skimmed part of it, and it's really interesting, on entrepreneurial leadership, the art of launching new ventures, inspiring others, and running stuff. At DreamIt, as I think many of you know, we've been sharing a lot of ideas lately from the best in the business with a focus on surviving and thriving during these challenging times. So on today's show, Joel joins us and the topics we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about being an entrepreneurial leader. What does that mean? What are the characteristics of an entrepreneurial leader? Why is it important? How do you attain it? We're going to talk a lot about trust. It's so critical to an organization's success. So what are the methods that leaders can use to increase trust, particularly with a remote workforce, which is the situation most of us are in today? Also, how do you reinvigorate a team's sense of mission and cohesiveness when everyone is virtual? And the last thing we'll hit upon is in times of crisis, for the best leaders, where are they focusing their efforts and all of their energy? So the goals of our show, just to know as a reminder, it's to help startups, founders, and others in the whole global startup stack point out ideas you can hopefully learn from and what's success for us. You're helped. You pick up a few gems and you're a little bit entertained. Let's dive in. Joel, welcome to Dream It Live. Thanks for coming in today. Great to be with you, Steve. Great to be. So thank you for joining us. And you're in, um, so what did I miss, by the way, in your background and your bio? You have such an interesting bio. You've done so many things. What did, did I miss anything? Well, I noticed that you put, put a picture of Stanford on that had the Hoover Tower. I used okay. to be chairman of the board of overseers at the Hoover Institution, which is a oh, think wow. tank at Stanford. So, Very cool. Uh, and then I was the managing partner of a big real estate company called Trammell Crow Company that was sold to Coldwell Banker. So I've kind of been in the gig economy for many, many years. Can't keep a job. So I <laughs> That's funny. So you've worked in real estate, aviation. What other industries have you worked in? And you teach at Stanford. You've done so many things that you're an investor. What other big industries have you worked in? Well, I backed a lot of industries um, really as a venture investor or a private equity investor. So we've bought maybe 250 companies over wow. the years, and uh, they've been in all kinds of different things, healthcare, uh, software as a service, uh, among others. Okay, cool. And then um, I'm streaming from Philadelphia. You're joining us today from? Salt Lake. Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay, cool. That's what I. That's where I thought you were. I just wanted to double check. Okay, so let's go in. So we got the background. It's great. Let's get started. I wanted to start, open up the conversation. You know, today is such a challenging time for people. There's massive unemployment. I saw the numbers this morning. It's scary how big unemployment is. It's tough for businesses. It's tough for startups. So for those that are guiding companies, the first topic I wanted to talk about was is entrepreneurial leadership. So I wanted to get into that. You have your brand new book just came out, your second book on entrepreneurial leadership. Could you give us a definition? Like, what does it mean to be an entrepreneurial leader? I know it's something special. It's not just being a leader, but entrepreneurial leadership. What does that mean? So entrepreneurial leadership goes beyond being an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs mm -hmm. innovate. They light fires. But the entrepreneurial leader actually creates durable change. Other people can lead it. They can do other things. They are actually make sure that businesses can be managed, that they can mm -hmm. be administered, they have political skills, they have skills as presiders, so they can really create these durable enterprises, taking a, something from an idea to a profitable business, all the way to being a durable enterprise. 
Okay. And so characteristics, if someone's an entrepreneurial leader, I, I love litmus tests. You know, your blue turns red and acid. You know that you're dealing with an entrepreneurial leader if they have what characteristics? What are the top maybe two, three, four things that defines it? Defines well, it? Yeah, they, they see around corners. They anticipate okay. the future. They create the future. Uh, and they do it in a way that they attract great people. They attract capital. They build covenants with customers. And ultimately, if they really become an entrepreneurial leader, they create an enduring enterprise. Okay. I was going to ask why it's important, but I think you just answered all of that. They can see around corners. They create an enduring enterprise. So, it, at, you know, is, that, is, it, is it characteristic that you know, when, like we deal with early stage startups, like pre-series A mostly is when they start with Dreamit. When you think about, so, you know, everybody that we work, they're very entrepreneurial. But do you think this is an important characteristic at big companies, startups, like how does it apply? You know, if a, a JetBlue or, or a GM or an Amazon, are there entrepreneurial leaders there? But then at a two-person startup in Silicon Hills, right, in, Silicon, in uh, outside Salt Lake City, how does it play? Yeah, so uh, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that do these pre-Series A uh, seed investment kinds of deals. Many of them fail over time mm -hmm. in, large, in large part because they're unable to do the things that entrepreneurial leaders do. Uh, some people who read this book early on were surprised that I'd picked Stan McChrystal, who's the four-star right. general that led JSOC, as an entrepreneurial leader. And I right. was Alan Mulally, who ran Boeing and Ford. And they were quite entrepreneurial. They saw the future. Uh, Ford, as you know, didn't take any money from the federal government. Uh, Alan is very creative, very innovative, very able to lead an enduring enterprise. So uh, they, I use them as examples of entrepreneurial leaders, along with many of the others that we've backed that are startups that actually convert their startup into an enduring enterprise. Got it, interesting. So so it's important in big companies, it's in the military, he said he's part of JSOC was the example used. Is an entrepreneurial leader, I mean, this is that classic nature nurture kind of thing. Are, are they born? Can you learn this skill? If you work with a young entrepreneur that's doing a startup, can they become an entrepreneurial leader over time? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of people used to have this idea that leaders or, or uh, entrepreneurs are to the manner born, you know? And I think there are people who have sort of natural instincts to mm -hmm. think about the future and to create new things and whatever, but people can learn to do that. Uh, one of the thoughts I had in writing this book was uh, by watching pilots, uh, mm -hmm. they fly planes, they have a checklist and they go over this checklist and they may, be, they may have flown for 25 years and they'll still mm -hmm. go over the checklist. Absolutely. So I wanted to provide a series of checklists that people could think about and practice and get better and better. It's like uh, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, you know, right. you could become better at something. Right. It's interesting, by the way, just a quick shout out. I know one of your pilots who also happens to run at JetBlue runs the venture capital group, uh, JetBlue Ventures, Bonnie Simi. I don't know if you know Bonnie personally. She I, is, oh wait, I know you're going to know her because she's also Stanford. She is amazing. Yeah. Just, I, the so, first time I met her, just a quick side there. First time I met her, you're like, she runs JetBlue Ventures, but she's a line pilot for JetBlue. And then she's like, yeah, and I went to Stanford for my MBA. And you're sitting there like, wow, I'm so impressed. And like, yeah, and I got a gold medal in rowing in the Olympics. So it's like, okay, I'm a total underachiever. <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah. Anyway. She has three degrees from Stanford. She's been wow. to three Olympics. Uh, she was a sportscaster on TV and oh, a left captain for United Airlines. And now she's running JetBlue Ventures. So yeah, I, I love Bonnie. In fact, we met at Stanford. Uh, she was taking a, a class and she came heard, uh, and heard me give a talk. And it turns out we were both inspired uh, wow. by the same guy. 
to become entrepreneurial. So it's very it's cool. quite interesting. Yeah, it's very cool. Okay, so you talked about like you have these checklists, and by the way, I used to be a pilot and just general aviation, and hopefully one day again. And you're right, you live and die by checklists. Yeah. Um, but so you said you have checklists in the book. So can you go in a little bit of detail, like? How can I refine the skill? How do I get better? How do I learn this? I mean, I can just read the book. Is that the answer? Are there other things I can do to get better as an entrepreneurial leader? Yeah, I would, I would love to say just read the book and you'll be there, but uh, it's not that simple. But right. uh, yeah, what I tried to do is really simplify the notion and say there are really are four things that you need to do. These are the peers mm -hmm. that you need to drill all the way to bedrock. The first is you need to become trustworthy and create a high trust organization. Trust mm -hmm. is the operating system of a, of a great enterprise and of a life well led. Uh, mm -hmm. The second thing you have to do is figure out your mission. You know, what is it that you're gonna, and not mission statement, but really what goal do you have? What is meaningful? To mission people? as a leader or mission is for the company? Mission for the company. You, and it. it's really what peak are you trying to climb? Okay. Get everybody climbing the same peak and they own it. They're mm -hmm. excited about it. You don't have to motivate anybody when they're climbing the same peak and are excited about it. So getting the mission right and, and articulating it properly. The third thing you have to do is you have to bring on a great team. That means sourcing the right people, interviewing them, doing due diligence, onboarding them, uh, assigning them, demoting them, promoting them, and ultimately mm -hmm. letting go the ones that don't perform. So by the time you've got a high trust culture, you've got clarity about which peak you're climbing, and you've got a great climbing team that are belayed, Mm -hmm. Then the question is delivering on your promises, delivering results. And so it's that execution step that is really the one that creates a great enterprise. So then I've got a whole series of things, checklists for making great decisions, mm -hmm. selling properly, negotiating, all the things that entrepreneurs, and I know you're an entrepreneur, Steve. I know you've run into every one of yeah. these 10. And yeah, so yeah. I'd be interested in, when you've read the book, uh, you know, to... Tell me which ones ring true to you. I, I will. I, I bet you. Yeah. And I, the trust was great. I read that book. It was terrific. I read the second. Right. I read the first edition, not the second edition. But right. um, okay. Okay. So let let's transition. Let's go deeper. Right. Let's hit our second topic: the ten laws of trust. You were saying like to be an entrepreneurial leader, the first thing you brought up was you need to be trustworthy. So you know, leadership you know has a lot to do about trust. Like you were talking to. Let's let's get into that detail. So your previous book was the ten laws of trust. Can we go through? And I think Dustin will bring up. What are those 10 laws of trust? Can we kind of drain through that and give us a, a, an overview? Yeah, well, so it really starts with integrity. You know, if you're not trustworthy, you know, the way that you build trust is by delivering on promises. Mm -hmm. And so effectively, if you are able to do that, people will start to trust you. And whenever you break promises or fail to deliver on time, on budget, the deliverables mm -hmm. people expect, you're making a withdrawal from the trust account. But there's mm -hmm. more than that, more than just you being trustworthy. You have to do the things that initiate trust within a, a culture. So building a high trust culture will actually mean you can do a whole lot more than, than you can in a low trust culture. Low trust right. cultures are driven by power. They're driven mm -hmm. by politics. High trust right. cultures are driven by shared values. So then What's there's the a whole... Go ahead. Yeah, how, so how do you build high trust culture? Is there any little secret one or two tricks like so you have that high trust? <laughs> so I think there are 10 tricks and okay, I call them okay. the laws. And I <laughs> think it starts out with people understanding uh, that trust is derivative of character, competence, mm -hmm. and the authority to deliver on promises. If all three uh, conditions aren't present, the trust mm -hmm. is kind of a pseudo trust. It won't it'll fail you over time. So Building on these ten on these ten laws, I think the next thing is that you have to show respect for people. If if you don't show respect, not just for all, anybody in your organization, but for consumers, for competitors, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, People say, gosh, if I were on the other side, would they act that way about me? So I think respect is a really key to a key element to building high trust. Um, and then I kind of go, the list is on your screen there. You can yeah, see. Yeah. So anyone that you yeah. want to talk about, I'd be happy to, to chat okay. about. So let, let me, uh, I'm going to, I'll pivot a little bit. Let's just see. So what measures that type of thing. So let's keep going. So what happens or what have you seen as your experience again, whether they're startups or earlier stage or later stage or, you know, an airline or Trammell Crow and real estate, what happens when an organization doesn't have a high trust culture? What are some of the characteristics? Again, it's almost like a litmus test. You know, you know when there's not a high trust culture, when these types of things are happening or not happening. How would you define that? Things start to move slowly. Politics right. takes over. The most powerful win, not the most potent idea. You know, right. this idea that the best idea wins happens in high trust organizations. High trust mm-hmm. organizations also have conflict, you know, because people are debating things. They can be noisier than low trust organizations. Low trust organizations are like hospitals, you know, right. everybody's sick, but nobody's anything. So things go underground. Uh, the culture is sick, it's toxic. Uh, there's lots more turnover. In high trust organizations, people feel respected. They feel like they're members of a winning team and they're doing something that they care about. And so decisions get made more rapidly. They are more flexible. People can change their minds and go different mm-hmm. directions. And so that's one of the things you see in a lot of these entrepreneurial uh, enterprises is people change their minds. They go different directions. Markets change, people change, and there's no recrimination. People trust each other and they move quickly. Okay. So let's, let's a little bit more on trust. So for most companies these days, they're remote workforce globally, right? We're all going through a global difficult time. So if I'm in an organization and I'm trying to increase trust and become more of a high trust organization, but everybody is a remote workforce now. Everybody's working from home. Do you have any, you know, sage advice or ideas? Those ten, you know, those ten laws of trust. When everyone's remote, any any suggestions for the audience or startups on what they can do to help build trust? Yeah, I think the first thing is you confront reality. I mean, we're dealing with facts uh, on the ground, and I think anybody who's trying to deny that or spin it or whatever will actually uh, make a withdrawal. Uh, people will trust them less. Then you communicate, you over communicate mm-hmm. and you communicate bad news as well as good news. You communicate after, during and before events and you just stay in constant contact and are transparent. But I would say most importantly, if you're just starting to develop trust now, you probably mm-hmm. waited too long. Trust right. gets built up a conversation at a time, a delivery mm-hmm. at a time. It's a, it's a very slow building that can be destroyed quickly, but it's built up slowly. So I think you can do a lot of things that increase trust levels, but if you start in a deficit, it's gonna be tough. Got it, okay, all right. Let's move on to our next topic, innovation and resilience. So, you know, you talk about in your your book um, on um, being an entrepreneurial leader, you know, strategies, mental models, and checklists that can help startups and executives to innovate and become more resilient. So any thoughts around how do you drive innovation at times like these. And before you hit that, I just wanted to come up with something I think about with innovation, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go first. So I have a, a huge benefit that once a year I go to NASA in Houston and spend a bunch of time there. Thank you, for, Dustin just brought this up. And and to me, I'm a big fan of the expression NITMOI, right? N- necessity is the mother of, inven- of innovation or invention. You think about Apollo 13, right? Houston, we've had a problem or we have a problem. I heard the story at NASA years ago and they said, 
it was the most innovative we had been for years in those three days, because we didn't have a choice. Like all these astronauts, I think three were on board, three or four, three, they're all gonna die, right? So, so times like these, how do you be innovate? How do you be innovation? How do you be innovative? Excuse me. Be resilient. What are your thoughts on resilience and some mental models and checklists that leaders could use? Well, I, th I think you identified uh, one of the great conditions, and that is things are uncertain. Things aren't going right. We're under stress. Mm -hmm. There's great adversity, and that does create invention. So I, I felt for a while that. Uh, launching this book at this time was terrible timing. I now mm -hmm. feel that every leader is mm -hmm. going to have to be entrepreneurial. Even the presiders over large organizations are going to have to reimagine what it is they deliver. They're gonna have to rethink their brand. And I would think that it starts with thinking about what is your covenant with mm -hmm. your customers? What do they mm -hmm. trust you to do? And how can we reimagine that? In the airline business, we tell people that it's the safest form of travel. And so right. we've got to now expand this notion of safety to health. So taking people's temperatures, not sitting people in middle seats, wearing masks, sanitizing planes, letting people know that the air in an airplane is the cleanest on the planet. It's right. some scrubbed air in the planet. So these are all right. safety features that are our covenant with our customers. But we're having to, having to rethink all those things and make sure we're still delivering on promises. So I think that's one of the things, every business that I'm, so I'm on several boards and we're all mm -hmm. thinking about what can we deliver to our customers at this right. stage and going into the future. I think thinking three to five years into the future is an important thing that entrepreneurial leaders do well. Right, interesting, like you said, seeing around corners or seeing into the future. And we've seen that too. Like we've had a lot of great startups where you meet a, an entrepreneur who's a leader and they're almost foreshadowing the future. Like they're yeah. telling you what's gonna be three years from now. And it's almost like they're clairvoyant, but they have such a vision and, and you actually believe that they can execute and get you to that vision. It's really kind of cool. So along so, that- you So let me just yeah, say one other thing please. there. I think part of it is they create the future too. Right. It's not just they're seeing around corners and imagining, they are doing that. They're taking that into account. But in many cases, they're actually creating the future. They're thinking about things and doing things in a way that creates the future. Right. No, interesting. And I agree. I agree thoroughly. Okay. So um, one another thing, and you talked about this, about entrepreneurial leaders, trust, all that, you know, how do you reinvigorate your team's sense of mission and cohesiveness? Right, you want a cohesive team. I'm a big fan. I talk about it all the time. You know, teams win, and you have to work as a team. I'm a big fan of like hashtag teamwork in our Slack channels all the time. Teams win. So, any thoughts? Again, kind of checklists and ideas. Everyone's virtual. What are some best practices and strategies around sense of mission and cohesiveness and teamwork? Thoughts? Well, I think it actually is really important to articulate your mission clearly, to reinforce mm -hmm. your values, to be clear about which peak you're climbing. Uh, and communicating, over-communicating. I, I find that uh, communicating to lots of people at once is harder in a virtual world. If you can have one-on-one -on -one conversations or five-on-one conversations, the virtual world actually works pretty well and people are getting mm -hmm. better at it. So I right. think you almost can't do that enough. Um, okay. But so at any event, I think those are a couple of things. I, th okay. I think another thing that, uh, that entrepreneurial leaders do is they're action-oriented. You know, mm -hmm. they, they take steps. They don't wait for things to happen. And then there's no recrimination. You know, people in, under these kinds of conditions, people are gonna make mistakes. They're not right. gonna have things right every time. And so I think you have to have an organization that says, there's no recrimination around here. We don't focus on blame. That's not the drill. We focus on our customers, on our brand, 
on the future, on each other. We're belayed. We're on a cliff. We're right. belayed, and we're yeah, holding the ropes for each other. <clears throat> it's called the years ago, many years ago, early in my career, I worked at MCI, and it was a, at the time. It was a long time ago, a great company, and I had the time couple times to work with Burt Roberts, who was the CEO at the time. And I said, I can't imagine what it's like to run a company like MCI. You have so many decisions to make, just back to your execution point. And what he said to me, he said, Steve, you know, if I'm batting 700, if 70% of the time I make a great decision, I'm, I'm ecstatic. I have so many decisions to make on limited information, but the most important thing I need to do is make a decision, execute and move on. And it's not always going to be right. And I need to do the best I can do with, you know, with the information I have, but I've got to get those done and execute. So it's kind of interesting. Can I, can I add um, one other yeah, thing that I please. think the entrepreneurial leader does in making decisions? And yeah. that is that he or she drives the decision-making as deep into the organization as possible. And mm -hmm. because they're trustworthy, they're predictable. And so people beneath them are able to make the calls. So they end up making 51-49 decisions, not 70-30 mm -hmm. decisions. All the 70-30 decisions are made closest to the customer. And if you've developed that kind of a, of a trust on the side mm -hmm. of the cliff, belayed, you'll find mm -hmm. the team really works together. People can come together. They can get closer under adversity. Wow, that's interesting. It's a, it's a great thought. It's a great thought. So more under adversity, a little bit more. I wanted to talk about resilience. Um, there's a woman, I don't know if you know her, she's an interesting researcher and author, Angela Duckworth. I actually reached out to her this week. She's at Wharton, uh, the other, you know, the MBA on the East Coast, so just kidding. Um, and she has a book on grit and talks about grit and how do you raise children that are gritty and, and although that's our mascot in Philadelphia for the hockey team, but we'll leave that alone. But the, the people who have grit, and I'm sure you've met so many entrepreneurial leaders that, you know, you just drag them through the mud and they just keep popping back up. They're very gritty. So do you have any thoughts about resilience? And grittiness, you know, how can how can people and organizations have grit and be resilient? So again, is it something that can be learned or taught, or is there a checklist? Because this is a time to have grit and resilience sure. right now. Well, no, it is time. It is it can be learned, yeah. um, but it it is really derivative of a culture. If you have a culture that's full of blame, where power wins, that's political, people learn to be wary. They go underground. And they, they're cautious more than anything else. So people who keep bouncing back up and get hit in the head and then come back again and are persistent, those are entrepreneurial leaders, but they don't blame people. They don't spend a bunch of time assigning blame. That's a, right. that's a worthless exercise. And so, uh, you know, that's what I would say about it. I, I've raised seven kids. And uh, one seven. of the things that we said in raising kids was we wanted our kids to be persistent. And so we, we had them get summer jobs. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing like having somebody to report to, uh, right. to learn how to be gritty. <laughs> right, right. No, it's good. Okay, I want to go to our fourth and final topic. I wanted to talk about leadership during crisis, right? So um, in that topic and leadership during crisis, what do you find are the best, for the best leaders that are out there, you know, where should they be focused in their efforts? With And, and for startups and, and for early stage companies that are watching right now, I just want to, as we talk about leadership during crisis, I just want to point out, as a reminder, so Joel is chairman of JetBlue Airlines. So for all of you that are complaining, like, oh, it's really hard right now, it's a time of crisis. Imagine running an airline. Imagine running a hotel. Look at what Brian Chesky at, at Airbnb has to go through an Uber. It's It's tough. For everybody, but so leadership during crisis, best leaders, where should they be focusing their efforts today? So I think the first thing you have to do is survive, mm -hmm. you know, and that means cash. So extending the runway, that means deferring capital expenses. If you have to furlough people, 
Uh, you have to do that. You have to do whatever it takes to survive because without that, there is no long term. So that's job one. Uh, then I think it's redefining the brand and the promise. And we've talked about that, you know, making mm-hmm. sure that you're clear about that. Then I think there are all these things that you you do to uh, communicate, confront reality, remain optimistic. I think the the worst thing is having a leader that's pessimistic and down in the dumps. I think it's mm-hmm. your job to to imagine a better future, to be ready right. for things coming back, to imagine what opportunities this uh, this creates for you. Um, and then we've talked already about communicating, but I think you communicate. Mm-hmm. The final thing that I would say is uh, really important is being kind. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people forget this under pressure, and I think kindness prevails. It lasts. And so imagine that you will get through this. It will be two years down the road at some point in time. And how you behave during this point in time will reinforce or destroy your brand. So kindness is, I think, an important thing to remember. Okay. No, it's great. They're all, and I agree with them all, especially, you know, preserving cash. And it's it's really hard. And again, there's a lot of big companies making tough decisions and doing tough things because, you know, and people are like, yeah, but you're letting me go or I was let go. And, you know, this is horrible. It, it is. But otherwise, you're going to lose the whole entity. You're going to, the whole thing will go under, yeah. which helps no one. So it's it's hard. And there's tough decisions to be made with limited information. And like you were even talking about, like nobody knows exactly the future. So you have to get in front of it. Um, and, you know, reimagining that type of thing. So it's great. Um, really, really helpful. I That was the main kind of topics I wanted to talk to you about. We have a bunch of questions if you have a few more minutes to join us and I'm gonna bring up some questions if that's okay. That first question is, do you feel that it's entrepreneurial leadership that drives companies to be innovative? So I'll, I'll let me just add a little bit more to that. Is it, you know, you think of JetBlue, think of Amazon, you think of Airbnb, you think, uh, thinking of some others that are real, Tesla is an innovative company. Are they innovative company because they're led by entrepreneurial leaders? Yes, because they're, but but I think you have to think of an entrepreneurial leader as a five-tool player. You know that term from baseball? You know, no, baseball. go tip. Yeah, so five-tool players are the ones that can hit for mm-hmm. power, hit for yeah. average, run, right. field, and throw. So okay. think of Willie Mays, who just turned 89, wow. uh, probably the greatest five-tool player in the history of baseball. Well, uh, entrepreneurial leaders are five-tool leaders. Mm-hmm. They not only innovate, it's really important to do that, but they can also manage complexity. They can administer policy. They understand power. They, mm-hmm. They're like politicians. They know how to reward friends and punish enemies. Okay. Uh, they, uh, and so they have, they have all these uh, characteristics uh, that, that the five-tool player has. It's interesting. Okay, I, I'm going to add just a little more to that. It's an interesting note. I was at a at a conference back when we used to go to conferences about three or four months ago, and I met the head of innovation for Amazon, with well, I think they have I don't know 650,000 people, or that was like three four months ago. And I and he he even said I kind of have a low badge count, like he was employee number 50 or some mm-hmm. some crazy number, like really low. And I said to him, Wow, you're the VP of innovation at Amazon. How big is your team? It must be massive. He's like, I have no direct reports. I've got, or I've got like two people on my team. I was like, wait, how's that possible? He said, my job, Amazon is a culture of innovation. My job is to make sure we have the right mindset and the right culture so everybody else can be innovative. But we don't want to drive innovation where there's the innovation team and their jobs to drive innovation, but to have that culture, which I thought was kind of interesting. That is interesting. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me go to the next question I have. One moment, let me pull it up, and Dustin will pull it up. So, um, and I appreciate there's lots, by the way, there's four people at Dreamit right now working as a team to, to put this on. There's me and Dustin producing and Victoria on questions. And anyway, it's a big effort. Anyway, so next question came up. Any ideas on how to check for trustworthiness and integrity when hiring? Okay, so you brought that up. You were even saying, you know, you need to hire trustworthy people. Suggestions, how do you, during the hiring process, how do you know if somebody's trustworthy? Well, let me just say that, um, so, so that's a hard thing to do, and you, okay. you do reference checks, and you do all the normal things, but let me just tell you a little story about, you mentioned that you'd read the uh, the first edition mm -hmm. of Ten Laws of Trust. Yeah. Well, it was bought by HarperCollins, and HarperCollins wanted to do a second edition, but they said you're going to have to put 30% uh, more material in it. What mm -hmm. do people ask you when you talk about it? And the first mm -hmm. one was, how do I know if my organization has a high, medium, or low level of trust. And mm -hmm. so I worked with Franklin Covey and we developed a diagnostic where you can apply it to your team and with 10 questions, you can give yourself a score and then you can start to manage towards higher trust. So one of the ways that you find that out, I think is by uh, data, by mm -hmm. having a diagnostic, by getting information and going in and right. saying, are we living these 10 laws of trust? So you'll find that you have a low, you may find that you have a low trust organization where people are political, they're wary, mm -hmm. they leave, turnover's high, et cetera. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's one of the things. But in, in uh, interviewing somebody, you know, mm -hmm. I look for a pattern, you know, how, how have they behaved? What have they, when have they made changes and why? And then I typically will do my own due diligence. I don't assign mm -hmm. it to HR. I want to do my own due diligence and kind of find out how they've behaved under various circumstances. But it's never, you're never sure until you've had the interaction with somebody. And it can take right. years to really develop. It's interesting. It's like, yeah, it's what you said. It takes a while. And it's interesting because, yeah, reference tracking is always a very tricky thing, right? You know, like anybody, one of the jokes I always think about is anybody can give you three great references, right? Charlie oh. Manson. Oh, he was a great little boy. He just played the yard. He wouldn't hurt a fly. It's like, okay, so it's how do you reference check? How do you circular reference? Anyway, okay, let's keep going. Next question is, and we have just three or four more, um, and I appreciate your time. Do you think the extended work from home experience will help companies trust team members even more? So is this time building trust, eroding trust? This is what it's asking. Only if there's great communication and people deliver on promises and uh, mm -hmm. they're transparent and all the same rules apply, whether you're virtual or in person. So if they apply, you can uh, probably at least keep trust levels the same and maybe in some cases increase. I think building a high trust culture in the midst of this can be challenging. Okay, fair enough. All right, thank you. Next question is, uh, oh, looks like we're gonna move from trust to leadership. So it says, as a founder, does it show strength or weakness if, I'm, if I ask, how am I doing as a leader? So I guess that's if I go to like direct reports, like how do you think of me as a leader? Does that, so this is just back to entrepreneurial leadership. Would you expect an entrepreneurial leader to ask their direct reports, like how am I doing as a leader? Or does that show weakness? Well, I think if done right, it's a really smart thing. I always say, uh, Feedback is the breakfast of champions. So I think you want yeah, to get that great. kind of Love that line. I think yeah. if you are, how am I doing? Am I okay? I think it can show kind of an uncertainty and, and actually can reduce people's confidence. So I think you have to do it in the right way. The mm -hmm. most important thing I've found about feedback is when I ask for it and people give it to me, I report back. I say, here's what you've told me. Here's what mm -hmm. I can do better. And here's what I'm going to do about it. If I do that and embrace people that give me negative feedback, they'll give it again and I can improve. You know, Ray Dalio talks about radical candor. 
And I right. think radical candor actually gives you a chance to really make improvement. And it actually builds trust within the organization. That's great. Okay, great. Let's go to our next question. We have just two more left. Good ideas on how to maintain a sense of trust in your, I guess, in your organization if you have to let people go. And I'm just thinking in the news, right? Airbnb, 25%. They've done a great job, I think, of it. But Uber, Lyft, just massive shedding. How do you maintain trust in your organization if you're going through that? I think uh, there, there should be a bit of an emotional context to it. I don't know if you saw uh, Arnie Sorensen's. Uh, you ought to watch it. It's five minutes on YouTube. Uh, right. It's a message to the Marriott employees. You could tell he was emotional. It mattered wow. to him. He cared about it. Well, that doesn't decrease trust. This right. is tough stuff. And right. you don't want to do it. And you want to be open and honest. And uh, you have, But you have to do what you have to do. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll watch it and we'll put a link from LinkedIn and, and YouTube. We'll put a link to that. I'll, but I'll watch that Marriott. That's interesting. I did not see that. Um, yeah. I'd like to. Okay. Let's go to our next question. Just two more. Another one popped in. So two more left and we're okay for time. All right. So let me read this. It's a little bit long. So it's probably going to come up small on the screen at the bottom. And let's just see. I think I even have a name. So from Nick DePhillips, who's watching on LinkedIn, asked, thanks for your question, Nick, in a rapidly changing, uncertain world, how do you balance short-term decisions with long-term strategy? And the, and then there's a follow-up question. I'll read it, but we can break it down. Follow-up, how do you decide between optionality and planting a stake in the ground when deciding the future will look like? Would you like me to, I can break that down if you'd like. But. Yeah, so, uh, well, uh, let's let's deal with the first one uh, first, which uh, is- I'll, re I'll reread it, because okay, I want to get, as, in a rapidly changing, uncertain world, how do you balance short-term decisions with long-term strategy? So uh, in the end, they should align uh, because the short-term is getting you to the long-term. So mm -hmm. uh, you really need to know that it's on the way. You're on a path to the summit and you may have obstacles along the way. And if people understand we're removing obstacles, we're taking a left turn here, it mm -hmm. should be on the way to the summit. If it's out in left field, often what that means is people are getting involved in hobbies or things mm -hmm. like that, and you're going to have to get out of those. So things get simplified under under stress. Okay. And then the second part of that question from Nick DePhillips, follow up, how do you decide between optionality and planting a stake in the ground when deciding what the future will look like? Well, I think we want those options. Some of them are expensive and some aren't. And right. so I always say, let's let's have pilots. Let's run mm -hmm. pilots and let's make sure we sunset them. It's hard to do that in these kinds of times. You may need to just get down to the core. What I find mm -hmm. is under extreme adversity, when their cash is short, you have to figure out what can we afford? What is core? What's essential to our brand? Then you get back to pilots and hobbies and things like that later on. But I think I, the most important thing I've ever learned about pilots is to make them small and to sunset them, but to mm -hmm. keep trying new ideas. Right. And I think in the pilot, too, is just make sure you have clearly defined success criteria as you go into it. Yeah, right? the okay. deliverable, what I call deliverables. Yeah. And Absolutely. so what I always say is I want a champion. I want to understand what the, deliver, the deliverables are. I want mm -hmm. a budget and I want a timetable. And uh, if I do that, I can manage projects to success. Cool. All right. Next question is from Jennifer Joe. Came again, came in from LinkedIn. So Jennifer asks, how do you ask for feedback in a safe way for employees? I mean, I don't know if that's for employees or from. It's probably I think Jennifer means from employees. How do you ask for feedback in a safe way from employees? Because you were saying it's like you have to have a very deft touch to asking, I guess. 
Yeah. One of the things I used to do is I would uh, call a meeting after the meeting or the sales mm -hmm. call or whatever and say, I want to know how we did on that. Let me first give you my assessment of what I did. And I would pick something that I didn't do very well. I kept mm -hmm. selling after the sale was made or I talked too much or whatever. What do you think? Mm -hmm. With that self-criticism, people feel comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. say, well, I thought that happened too. Here's what I did. And pretty soon right. it becomes fun. And people say, it isn't it fun. We're getting better. We're sharing mm -hmm. this feedback. So I think you have to lead by example. And that means you never punish anyone who gives you any uh, kind of criticism. You embrace it. You say, let me, let me think about that. Let me try to learn from that. Here's what I'd like to try to do about that. Um, mm. So that's how you start it. So I want to give just a drop of behind the scenes for Dream It Live, just so you know. Like if you have a chance after this, when we drop off of the live broadcast, we actually typically will guests will say, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? How can we do yeah. better? When yeah. you come off of that, we then as an internal team, because we keep doing these every week, okay, what went right? What went wrong? Where we get lucky? And I'll sit there and yeah, I went too long on this. It's the same type of thing. It's interesting that we constant always, constant improvement. It's just relentless improvement. So interesting. Okay. Um, Jennifer, thanks for your question. Last question we have up is from Matthew Hughes. Again, it's kind of long. I'll read it to you. So Matthew, that Matthew, thank you for your question, asks, from an investment standpoint, how are companies and our VCs thinking about ensuring health checks and more specifically, mental health checks in the future of business. Well, that's uh, yeah. So I, uh, I I just have to say I haven't thought a lot about that other than just mm -hmm. checking in with people. I know that we're uh, here at Peterson Partners. We're thinking mm -hmm. about who's vulnerable, and mm -hmm. we're calling them, and we're spending a lot of time with them. So uh, that's that's kind of what we're doing. I've not thought about it as a generic issue. Though. That's a great question. It is I'm a great. Sure, question. there are people that are under a lot of stress and are going to need help. Yeah, and it's interesting. We had on last week on Dream It Live, Sarah, who um, is a great HR person and actually has a psychology background. We are starting to go through, and I think she's going to be back on in June to kind of with a couple other chief people officers. We have a couple CPOs that we want to do kind of a three-person panel and start to get into these issues. Like, how do you manage a large organization and deal with the healthcare and the mental health issues? Because people are, you know major post-traumatic stress disorder is gonna come out of this whole event, um, yep. especially when people are very fearful about what might happen again in the fall or what's gonna go uh, going on. Okay, those are all of our questions. Thank you for staying with us so long. Um, I really appreciate it. Joel, thank you for being on. I'm just gonna hit a couple things and if you can stay on afterwards, we'd love to sure. ask you those questions. Also, please check out our Dream It Dose on YouTube. These are short five to seven minute videos all on pragmatic techniques. They're all the things that we see startups make mistakes on again and again. So we shoot these dream at doses. Please check it out on YouTube. Again, Joel, thanks for joining us today. It was terrific. Stay safe, stay well. Thanks for streaming in from Salt Lake City. Thanks everybody for watching. Thank you. Thank you, Steve.